You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, we've got Jason Shapiro, who was featured in the last Market Wizards book called The Unknown Market Wizards. He's also the publisher of the Crowded Market Report. Jason, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's awesome having you. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off by asking you to give our listeners a little bit about your background, how you got into trading and your journey to where you are today. So uh, when I came out of college, I I lived in Hong Kong. Um, I worked for a bank, um, commercial bank, and was just kind of bored. And um, I had a friend who was a broker and I opened an account and and I started trading. Um, Started trading Hang Seng Index Futures. Uh, I didn't really know what that was, but sounded as good as anything else. Um, and, uh, you know, and I just kind of got the bug, you know, it was a bull market, of course, and I was young. So young people have a pretty good time making money in bull markets. Um, so, you know, I made some money pretty quickly and I was young and making money and thinking it was the greatest thing in the world. And I kind of got hooked. And of course, I, there's been many ups and downs since then. I lost all that money after I made it anyway, but, you know, just kind of kept fighting over the years and kept trading and kept trying to learn and kept making money and kept losing money. And, um, to this very day, as a matter of fact, um, and just kind of refine my process. And, you know, that's kind of how it's gone. It's still going, you know, there's no destination. It's all a journey. So. Right. And, you know, in uh, your journey, which is documented in the unknown market was in a lot more detail. You Mm -hmm. had the opportunity to trade with uh, Helmut Weimar, who's sort of a legend in the trading world. So could you sort of describe, number one, you know, what it was like to actually trade or what it was like to work with Helmut Weimar? And secondly, you know, you are a contrarian and, you know, he is a trend follower. So, you know, how did, you know, how, you know, how did you go about, you know, still keeping your style and not becoming a trend follower? Yeah. Um, Helmut was, um, was a very lucky relationship that I ended up having. We met through a very happenstance circumstance, I guess you would call. Um, but I did meet him and um, he kind of liked what I was doing and agreed to uh, allocate some money to me. I started a CTA and he allocated some money to me. Um, He was a trend follower in terms of they essentially invented trend following at Commodities Corporation. Um, Helmut also was and is an incredibly smart guy um, and understood very well that what I did as a contrarian um, would be complementary towards, you know, trend following things, right? right. Um, Helmet also was at the point in his life at that point, I believe, where he wanted to make money just like everybody does. He wants positive returns on his accounts, but he also was a, and is a, a extremely generous guy, you know, um, part of the legacy, at least to some people for traders is to fund and, encourage the next generation of traders. I mean, that's an old story. It comes from the, the trading floors, you know, people have been backing young kids and all that coming onto the yeah, trading floor. Yeah. 
I don't think there are trading floors anymore anywhere, but when there were trading floors, you know, people backing young people coming up on trading floors and all that has been a, a legacy. And look, you make money doing that, but it's also like a legacy thing. So Helmut, you know, was like that. He taught me he, not so much about trading, um, but about that kind of aspect of life, you know? Um, he, he's right. a very intelligent and very generous guy, you know? Um, so that's how that whole helmet thing came about. Um, so the whole him being a trend follower and me not, that, that, that was never an issue. In fact, that was a benefit. You know, he could, he didn't need anybody to manage his money trend following, you know? Right, yeah. Um, so that's kind of the helmet aspect. And, and like I say, the most important thing is what he taught me about uh, being an adult human being more than anything else, right? Um, what was the other question? I'm sorry. Yeah, so the other question was, you know, how you were a contrarian, he was a trend follower and, you know, how that yeah. meshed together. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of how that whole meshed together. Um, right. Go ahead. Yeah. So, and, you know, when you started trading, you know, the market structure was as a whole sort of different because, you know, CTA assets have, you know, post 2008 have sort of exploded. So, you know, do you think that the underlying market structure has changed since you started trading? I don't really think so. Um, I mean, has the market structure changed? Arguably, you have to say yes. But has it changed really for what I try to do? I don't really think so. You know, you know, everybody's long. I want to get short. Everybody's short. I want to get long. You know, um, that kind of idea has always been there, you know. Um, and as long as you can measure in some way, shape or form, if everybody's long or short, then it doesn't matter if it's a computer algorithm that's long or short or you know, some, you're right. When, when I started, well, when I started in the CTA world, I think there was $30 billion in CTA assets. Mm -hmm. And now there's probably, I don't know, $30 trillion in CTA <laughs> assets, right? Um, so, you know, and it's funny, because I remember when I started my first CTA, which was in like 98, there was $30 billion. And that was up from like 15, five years. And people were like, oh, this business can never get any bigger than 30 billion. That's huge. And now, I mean, there's CTAs that have $30 billion by themselves, right? Yep. Um, yeah. But, you know, the whole market has expanded as well. So, you know, uh, like I say, for my purposes, I don't think that the structure has changed, but clearly there's changes that go on consistently. Yeah, and, you know, in line with that, you know, it has the ramp in these passive commodity holdings among institutions from 05 to 09, roughly, you know, has that changed the return structures and the return profiles of... No trading commodities. Again, I don't think so. People ask me a lot because I measure a lot of data using futures and mm -hmm. people get, well, what about all these ETFs? You know, maybe that's not being captured in the futures market and all that. Um, but my return structure hasn't changed since that's gone on. You know, I think that uh, even if there's ETFs that people are getting long, I feel like it flows into the futures market some way or another anyway, you know, and if nothing else in the futures market is at least somewhat of a sample of what's overall going on. Right. So, I like to think it hasn't affected me. Um, maybe it has. We've gone through and looked at, you know, ETF holdings and sizes and all that and see if that is something we could trade around or, or get information out of. Mm -hmm. But at this point, I haven't really found for, again, for my purposes, I haven't really found um, anything to help me with that. I know there was a period when the ETFs first came out and they were buying all these commodities to get the commodity uh, exposure, <laughs> they were buying the futures and, you know, they had to roll the futures every time. And because they were an ETF and because they're registered with the SEC, they had to have that all in their documentation mm -hmm. as to what the rolling method was. 
So people were like front running those roles and making millions of dollars running those roles that they had to do. Because these guys had no choice here on January 20th, we have to roll. Okay, well, then on January 19th, I'm going to buy the roll in front of your face, right? I'll sell it to you tomorrow, right? So, you know, but that's just it. Things like that get arbed out very quickly anyway, because people have an amazing way of smelling out where to make money, you know? And so it sure, happens yeah. and, it, and then it gets arbed out and it's kind of gone anyway, so. I mean, the yeah. role issue with commodities has always been a problem anyway, you know? <laughs> you know, you lose money over time because of the role, you know, and that, that's yet to be solved, so. Right, and you know, as you, as you talk about these flows, you know, one of your, one of the things that you use, uh, you know, to trade is the COT report, the commitment of traders report. And, you know, before we get into just talking about the COT report, how much of the movement in commodities and, you know, every, uh, in futures and whatever you trade, how much of that is driven, driven by these short-term speculative flows versus long-term sort of macroeconomic fundamentals? It's not a question I would be able to answer accurately, you know, because I, I have no way of knowing that. Um, but do you so, ever pay attention to sort of what's going on in the macro while you trade or do you just focus purely on flows? No, I focus on the macro, um, mm -hmm. not because I'm trying to make a trade because of the macro, but I'm trying to understand why all these other people have this trade on because of the macro so that I can know when the market starts to reject that macro view, you know? Right. Because that's really how I'm looking to initiate a trade is I'm looking for the market to kind of reject what everybody's thinking. So if everybody's buying corn, you know, because every month the numbers that China is buying is, you know, off the charts, right? Well, I want to know that so that next month when the data comes out and the number of corn that the amount of corn that China is buying is off the charts again, I'm looking for the market reaction then, you know, if the market doesn't react well to that, well, gee, maybe that news story is done. Right. So I pay attention because of that, but I'm not saying I'm getting long corn here because my forecast for China buying of corn is 20% higher than the forecast of whoever. I'm not doing it because of that, because I clearly don't have any better ability to forecast the demand for corn from China. You know, I'm sitting here in Rhode Island. What the hell do I know about that? How am I going to, you know, how am I going to have an edge there? Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So could you go into how you use the COT report and sort of, you know, sort of explain how that fits into your process, what you watch for and, you know, how you, how you use it to identify potential trading opportunities. Right. So the whole belief system um, without the COT report is I'm trying to figure out where markets are over discounting, right? Um, and what do you use as the measure of discounting? Mm -hmm. And most people obviously use price, you know, hey, this thing's gone up a lot. Therefore, the market's discounting good news. Um, I like to use participation. You know, my theory is more like, well, gee, everybody's long here. So therefore, they must be discounting a lot of bullish news, right? So how do you know if everybody's long? What does that even mean, right? Mm -hmm. Clearly, everybody is never long because there's a long for every short, right? But how can you determine when people are, are leaning long or excessively long? Um, and one way that's you know, out there is the commitment of traders reports because the CFTC uh, sends that out every week and it shows you where people are positioned, right? So that will tell you, gee, everybody's long here or everybody's short here or everybody is not long or short here. You know, they're pretty neutral. Um, so that's the data that I use primarily um, to try and figure that out. 
and it's not perfect by any means, um, but it's done a pretty good job for me. You know, it does a pretty good job. You add other disciplines on top of that, obviously, you stay disciplined and, you know, it's kind of worked for me. Right. And, you know, uh, sort of the commitment of share this report is sort of divided into, you know, commercial speculators and, you know, a bunch of other categories. So, you know, what exactly do you pay attention to in those COT reports? So I pay attention to it all. Um, we've tested just about all that data. I don't really use the options uh, data. They also give futures and options outstanding positions. Um, and people that are probably a lot smarter than me can use the options data and probably figure out how much delta needs to be done or whatever and how much gamma risk there is. But I just really use the pure future stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I use the three categories, the commercial, the large speculator, and the small speculator. And really, you really only need to use the commercials if you're going to do that in a way because the commercials are going to be the exact opposite of the large and the small speculators added up. If they're short a million contracts, the commercials are going to be long a million contracts, right? So I really look at those three um, and primarily the commercials because that is those three anyway, right? And I'm just looking for, you know, way off sides based on history position, you know? Uh, this is the longest commercials have been this market in four years, you mm -hmm. know, or, or as an example, right? So clearly the speculators are way short. And so I'm looking to go with the commercials at market terms, you know? Um, I think in financial theory, they'll tell you that commercials are hedging their production or whatever, right? Right. So if they're hedging their production, there's a cost to hedging. There's no free hedges in the world, right? So mm -hmm. there's a cost to that hedging. So speculators are taking the other side of that hedge and they're getting paid that cost. They're getting paid to speculate over time, right? And that's kind of what trend following is, right? Mm -hmm. um, I argue that that's probably right. But at maximum extremes of the market, when speculators are getting ridiculous because they're just chasing price at any price, they're chasing momentum, which is what trend followers do, right? By definition, right? At a certain point, the market has over discounted something because there's too many people already long. So at the turns, the commercial will, will have it right and the speculators will have it wrong. In the middle, the trend followers will have it right and the commercials will happily play them their hedging cost. So I'm trading for the turns. You can clearly also use this data to do trend following, right? Hey, I'm long because the trend is long. And you know what? Speculators aren't really that long yet. So the trend has a way to go. So I'll stay long. You know, you can do trend following too. <laughs> it's just not what I do. I do turn picking just because, I don't know, that's kind of my personality anyway. So. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and so do you, you said that you only, you, you focus on sort of the relative levels as opposed to looking at the absolute levels, right? So yeah. for example, yeah. So the problem with absolute, absolute levels is that the volume clearly over time is a lot different. The amount of mm -hmm. people that are trading these things now compared to even 15 years ago, but certainly if you go back 30 years is ridiculous. Just so to say there, oh, speculators are along a hundred thousand contracts with this. Okay. 15 years ago, 100,000 would have been an incredibly huge number. Today, 100,000 doesn't mean anything, maybe, right? right? So that's why we look at their relative number, you know, um, rather than just the, the outstanding number. Right. And, you know, the other thing that you use along with the COT report is you, know, you focus on the tape. And I, uh, and I quote from the, the interview done by Jack Schrager, you said that the tape knows more than anyone else. So... How exactly do you use the tape? So really, I'm looking for, you know, 
it's all classic stuff that you can read in Jack Schwager's books or just about any other book on trading, right? A bull market, good news, the market should be strong, right? Mm -hmm. Bad news, the market should be not so weak, right? It should be able to shake off, but it doesn't have to totally shake it off, but hey, here's a bull market and here's a piece of bad news. The market was down a little bit. There's no information there, right, to me. Right. Here's a piece of good news. The market goes up. Okay, there's no information there to me. Unless I can predict the good or bad news, which I've yet to be able to predict the future, you know, um, you know, there's no information there to me. But when the market does something other than what it should do, now maybe you've got some information, right? So here's great news. And hey, the market didn't go up. Well, why not, right? And my answer will be, well, because everybody's already long, right? So everyone's already long. The market can no longer go up on good news. I'm going to get short, you know, uh, that's kind of how I do it. So, so you just focus on price action versus news. Price action versus news. That's right. And a lot of people to pick trending points, they use stuff like say head and shoulders or double tops or whatever. Yeah. Do you use those kind of patterns? No. Okay. Is there any reason why? <laughs> um, actually, you gave the reason when you said what you, you said it yourself. A lot of people do it. <laughs> so how is there an edge? You know, mm -hmm. a lot of people do it. How is there an edge? Um, that's the exact reason. I think it's garbage. I, I think the market is mostly random anyway. So you can draw a chart. And it's not like I don't look at charts and I don't see head and shoulder. I mean, I see that stuff. I've read the books on technical analysis, you know, mm -hmm. but I would never trade something because there's a double top here. That, right. would, that would never happen. I trade based on what the market is telling me to do, right? I'm trading it because, hey, here's super good news and the market ain't going up anymore, which doesn't mean it can't go up tomorrow, in which case I'll get stopped. But I have found that that's a good point for, for entry. And I'm clearly not anyone who came close to inventing that concept. Everybody knows that. You know, A lot of people know that concept. Got it. Could you explain how you think about risk and think about position sizing? Yeah, so I target um, volatility of my returns. Mm-hmm. So because I have been able to backtest all my trading and all that stuff, and plus because I have a history now that's pretty long of doing the same thing, and I keep the whole history, I can sort of come pretty close to figuring out how much I should risk per trade that will get me to my target vol. Like if I'm looking for a 10 vol, right? Mm -hmm. I know that I should be risking 70 basis points per trade. Right. Um, and that will, get, that will over time get me to a 10 vol. So that's what I do. I risk 70 basis points per trade. I have a stop, a defined stop, which isn't a random thing. It's a stop on the chart, new high. Like if I'm getting short because I'm picking a turn, if the market makes a new high, then by definition, I haven't picked the turn. It's at a new high. It hasn't turned. So then that trade is no good anymore. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. my stop, right? And I know my entry. So I know my entry. I know my stop. I knew I want to lose 70 basis points per trade. So I just back into the sizing. Here you go. Put on, you know, whatever, 30 S&Ps or whatever it is, you know. Uh, and that's that's all I do. Uh, there's a little bit more that I do depending on what my portfolio looks like. If I have a nice bunch of trades on seven, eight trades and, you know, a bunch of them are non-correlated and all that, then I just leave it big. And I love when I can get to that point because I'm just playing a pure COT relative performance thing and that works over time. Um, sometimes my portfolio will be one-sided. Like let's say I only have two trades on. Let's say one is long the S&P and, you know, one is long some other risk asset that's highly correlated to the S&P. Mm -hmm. Well, now I got to think a little bit about portfolio risk, right? 
Um, and in those cases, I'll, I usually just shrink my overall sizing because, you know, if I have four trades on that are all kind of long risk trades, while it would be great if I get it right and all four work, I, I think more about what happens when all four don't work and I get it wrong. I don't want to lose four times the amount of money, right? Right. So I'll usually shrink my portfolio until I get some other trades that are going to offset that. And then I can keep full size of everything on. Like right now, that's what's gone on. I spent a couple months having sort of one-sided trades on, um, basically shorting commodities throughout December and January and February. And that was the only trades I could get on. Because if you think about what's crowded here or what's going to be crowded here, there was nothing. Everything has gone up since March a lot. So there's nothing that people are super short, right? There are some things on a relative basis that people were super long. So I was getting nothing but short commodities, which sucked, A, because they kept going up, <laughs> and B, because it's not a very good portfolio. As the last couple months have gone on, the last, let's say, six, seven weeks, those short commodity trades have been working, which is great. But now I'm starting to get some long trades that you could argue are offsetting the short commodity. Like, okay, long gold, I got maybe like a long silver possibility, but then also like in the currencies, I'm getting some like long yen, possibly long Swiss. So while I might be short copper, I'm in the money, I'm not getting out yet. It might go out and take out that high, but if it goes out and takes out that high, there's a good chance now, now that I'm either long gold, which maybe will go up with that. You could argue commodities are gonna go up because dollar goes down. I'll be short some dollar stuff. So that will make the money. So it's almost like an exit for that short copper is like long yen or something, right. you know? Yeah. Um, and so with that kind of thing on, knowing that my portfolio looks like that, I can keep the full size for everything on. Got it. And how do you think about taking profits? Do you, because you said that, you know, you're not much of a trend follower. You just focus on picking the turning point. So do you let it run or do you take it? How, how do you think about taking profits? Yeah. So, you know, I have my, my COT stuff, all that kind of index. It's an index. So if the index is at 100, I'm not going to get short. You know, if I get short and the trade works, I wait until the index gets back to 50, mm -hmm. you know, which is neutral, which again, it's just a function of what I'm trying to do. Why am I getting short? Because everybody's long. Well, and everybody's long. The market's no longer going up on good news. I get short. If the market starts going down, you know, what happens is everyone's stops start getting hit. All the trend followers, all the moving averages start getting hit and they're all getting stopped out that's the game I'm playing, right? Is that they're all long, they all gotta get stopped. And so the market's gonna have to adjust down to get them all out, right? Mm -hmm. Once they get out, well, now there's no edge to me anymore. So I'm not in the trade anymore. Just like I get stopped because I'm trying to pick the top. If it goes to a new high, I didn't pick the top, so I'm out. Right. I'm trying to play this crowded thing when it's not crowded anymore. Well, then what am I doing? I, I get out, you know, that's kind of where I take my profit. So you, so you stay short until everyone else gets out? Well, until it goes neutral. You know, mm -hmm. and I wait and the market either goes back up when they get super long again, or maybe the market keeps going down and they get super short and I'll be buying it down there, you know. Got it. Do you ever trade around a core position with options, for example? Or... I don't touch options. I only trade futures. I only trade directional futures. I've had people in my life, um, my old partner, he was an options trader anyway. And he always used to think we should do, oh, if we're getting short here, and why don't we buy these tiny calls against it, you know? So if we get if we get our short right and the market comes way down, we'll make money and we'll just lose a little bit on those calls. I'm like, well, then why don't we just put on less size? Like to me, the math is exactly the same. Instead of having a hundred contracts and a bunch of options, why don't we own the 60 contracts and, you know, and screw the options. I have a, I don't know, it's probably an irrational psychological thing against options, but I don't like them. 
to me, if you want to be an options trader, you're a volatility trader. I'm not a volatility trader because, you know, the vol changes over time, right? Mm -hmm. So I can't predict that. It's hard enough to predict the freaking direction, right? <laughs> That's the volatility too, right? So, I mean, I'm a directional trader, so I'm putting the futures on. If I get the direction right, I'm going to make money. And if I get the direction wrong, I'm gonna know I'm gonna lose money, and I know exactly how much I'm gonna lose. You know what I mean? So I'm comfortable with that. With the option thing now, it starts to become a whole different thing. I mean, I remember I shorted Tesla in my PA um, way back before it went crazy. Back when it was like you know at two hundred and forty dollars before the split and before all the craziness, right? And I was one of the guys, you know, this thing's a Ponzi scheme and all that, right? So I bought some uh, puts because my 401k doesn't let me trade short stock. Mm -hmm. So I bought some puts when the stock was at 240. I waited about two months. The stock went from 240 to 180. And my puts were worth basically exactly what I paid for. The stock went from 240 to 180 and I didn't make any money. And I was lucky because I was so pissed about it. My options had like a month to expire. And I'm like, shit, man, I'm even. Let's just get out of this which I did. And then Tesla obviously went from that 180 to whatever the equivalent would be now, somewhere around 2000 or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But you know, that's just an example. You know, that, that pisses me off, right? If I want to be short and the thing goes down, I should make money. And with options, that's not the case. So. And do you ever trade around your futures positions or do you just tend to see that as a waste of time or a distraction? I would call it a waste of money. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yeah, and just a overall uh, bad habit, you know, have I done it? Sure. Um, do I think when I have done it and it works, do I think that I'm the greatest trader in the world and I should do this all the time? Yes. And then eight out of the 10 times that I do it after that, I lose money. And then I remember, you know what, why am I doing this? And I've gone back through that loop a lot. It helps now that I'm managing client money. And they may or may not be watching me closely. These guys have, you know, 50 people trading assets for them. But mm -hmm. it helps me to stay disciplined with that because I'm like, I'm not going to trade around this. These guys are going to call me up and be like, why are you covering half this position here? You said that you get out here, you know, and no one's ever done that. But it helps with the discipline of that. And it's the right thing to do anyway, because over time, that's where I make the most money. So I should have enough discipline just based on that alone, right? Um, now, I'll trade around, like I said, when the risk is too skewed. You know, and I tell my clients that too. I use discretion on the position sizing based on the risk of the overall portfolio as I see it, right? Um, so if I'm way too skewed, you know, on one thing, then I'll, I'll, that's not necessarily trading around, but it will be because as I get, like I say, if I'm nothing but short commodities, right? I'm short six commodities, they're all correlated. Well, my position is going to be smaller. They come down, I'm in the money, I can't get out yet, but I start to get like a yen position or a long silver, long gold. Well, now I can start to increase that size back up because I've got the sort of the hedge in a way. Yep. On, right. So in that way, that's not really trading around, but it's adding and subtracting position size. Yeah. So I'm do not you, going do like, oh, this is a head and shoulders here and I'm long, so I better cut some off. You know, I'm not doing that. Right. And do you scale into position slowly or do you tend to, you know, put no, I, just, I put it on. Just put it on all at once. When all right. I sell, I sell. I mean, now, especially in some of the smaller markets, it might take me a little bit. I probably can't get it all done on the close. If I'm trading lean hogs and I need to sell 400 lean hogs if it closes down today, you know, and it closes at 205 and it's 10, you know, 204 and the thing just went down on the day, I'm not going to get 400 off. But, you know, in the next whatever, tomorrow, in the first couple hours, I can slowly kind of get it off. Got it. 
Got it. And do you think that the probability of being a successful trader today has gone up because, you know, we've, uh, we've seen a massive amount of democratization of information. So, you know, if I want to learn trading, I can go on YouTube, for example, or do you think it's overall gotten harder? I think it's always freaking hard, man. This is a really, really, really hard thing to do. You know, it's a really hard thing to do. Um, I think the democratization of information certainly wouldn't make it easier because now everybody's got the information. You know what I mean? It probably makes it harder. Everybody's, the, the playing field is now even, right? So I think that probably makes the market even more efficient. You know, more information just makes more efficiency, right? Um, which is one of the great things about the internet, obviously, right? It, it equals the playing field for everybody. You know, you can be some kid living in some third world country, not having great schooling and all that. And you can get on the internet and you can learn just as much as some guy going to Harvard. And that's beautiful, you know, but it's another conversation altogether, I guess. But no, I would say that that, that information makes it arguably more efficient and therefore harder to, to put up excess returns. And, you know, if you were starting today, you know, as a trader, you know, what, how would you go about, you know, how would you go about, you know, actually becoming, you know, a successful trader? I was starting today. Yeah. Knowing what I know, I would oh, probably yeah. go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say that? It's just a very hard game. You know, it's not an easy life. You know? I mean, being a gambler, gambling all the time on the future that's unknown is, you know, I mean, I'm only kidding. I love what I do. I could never do anything else. So let's get to the real question. What would I do if I were starting out today? Mm -hmm. You know, people have asked me a lot of times, you know, how can I learn how to trade? Right. And I can really only say what I did. And I was in a little bit of an advantage situation because I had a full-time job and I was getting paid pretty well for a 22 year old kid when I started trading, but I kind of had some extra you know, I worked for a place that provided me with housing, for example, so I didn't have any rent, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I didn't drink. I wasn't like a drinker going out, spending my money on all that stuff. So I had like some extra money, right? So my answer was always take all your money, put it into an account and start trading. And I guarantee you'll figure it out because you don't want to lose your freaking money, right? right. Yeah. There's no better motivation than that, right? And you probably will lose all your money, by the way, but you'll learn a hell of a lot from that, hopefully. And, you know, you'll move on and be able to do it. So I think that's the best way to do it. Take all your money, put it into account and start trading. And you, you, you'll, you'll try to figure it out. All of a sudden, you, it's amazing how many books you'll read and how many things you'll come across when all your money's at risk, right? You know, there's a hard choice of, oh, that's kind of a wise-ass answer. I mean, it's actually real. But how do you actually get into the business? How do you get to become a trader, right? Um, and I don't even know what the answer is to that. You know, really, um, there's not many trading firms that are backing guys, you know, right out of school or backing kids. You know, um, I don't know of any that do that. You know, obviously, like big hedge funds, you can get in as an analyst or get in as an assistant trader or an execution trader. If you know someone or if whatever, somehow you get that job and then you can kind of learn through that and develop into whatever you want to develop into. Right. Um, that's one way, but not everybody could do that. I could never do that. None of these hedge funds, well, there were no hedge funds when I came out of school, but none of the investment banks, and then nobody was hiring me, you know? Um, so I had to do it that other way, you know, put all my money into account and put it on leverage and hopefully try and figure it out. And the truth is I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> um, so those are the only two paths that I know of, you know, I don't know of any places that are hiring 
kids and training them up to be traders. They must be out there, but I, I don't know of any. Got it. And you know, who are the traders that you personally look up to the most and what have you learned from them? So I feel like the way that I trade, the style that I trade, to me at least, is really just like the conclusion of Market Wizards 1 and maybe Market Wizards 1 and 2. Um, to me, if I were to write a synopsis of Market Wizards 1, it would be my trading strategy. Now, maybe that's through my bias lens, right? Um, but so the guys in the first Market Wizards really are people that I, I look up to a lot, which is, you know, the first three people in that book all worked for Helmet. So it was kind of ironic that I ended up just running into Helmet this way in some random way and ended up actually managing money for him and having a relationship with him. Um, but, you know, certainly Covener, you know, Tudor, Michael Marcus, those, those commodity corp guys, they, you go read those chapters and they'll just tell you everything that I just said, you know? Um, so I, I, I look up to those guys a lot. Got it. I, you know, look up to them. I mean, they were, they were sort of my teachers without, you know, knowing that they were, but they were my teachers. And what would you say were like your main takeaways from those people? Um, be contrarian, you know, <laughs> be uh, flexible in your thought process, you know, know that you're going to lose money, watch your risk management, you know, and smart doesn't necessarily mean that you're the smartest person in the room and can predict the future. Smart means that you know that you're not the smartest room person in the world and you cannot predict the future. So that's what trading is. People like to think that trading is about, oh, I know that the corn demand is going to be more than the corn supply, so I'm going to buy corn. And then I buy corn, it goes up, and oh, look how smart I was. I, I predicted the future. I don't believe that's what trading is, and I don't believe that those guys thought that's what trading was either. You know, I saw a thing from Druckenmiller um, that he said, I was reading it like a few weeks ago, and I mean, Druckenmiller's had some pretty damn good success in this business, right? Absolutely. And, he, and he's like, look, I can't count on my ability to predict the future to make money because he goes, I'm wrong all the time. So I can't count on my ability to be right to make money. I have to make money some other way, right? Mm -hmm. and to me, that's what trading is. You know, it's not that other thing that people want it to be, right? And that a whole industry is built around, you know, with gurus and analysts that are predicting this and that and the other thing. To me, that's all garbage, right? And that's what people don't really understand, you know, um, which you wouldn't understand because it, it, it goes against sort of everything you've learned in life, you know, so you wouldn't understand it until you get into the middle of it. And some people never understand that, you know, and those are the people who probably don't make money over time. Got it. And, you know, other than being a contrarian, you know, what are the factors that have led you to being successful as a trader? You know, first of all, I would say, I don't think that the game is over yet. So we haven't written the final chapter. So am I successful as a trader? I've had some success as a trader at certain times, you know? Yes. Um, and that was, I would say, strictly because of um, refusal to, to give up, you know? And not possibly just refusal to give up, but no choice because... Where else was I going to go? You know, I'm going to go work for Citibank. I'm going to go work for, you know, all these people. You know, the one thing, the drug of trading, you know, if you can make money trading, it's the greatest, theoretically, greatest money in the world because you don't have to work for somebody. You don't have to listen to anybody. It doesn't matter what your boss says. 
doesn't matter what your wife says. It doesn't matter what anybody says. If you're making money trading, you're making money trading, right? Mm -hmm. And money's not the be all and end all. But so I just think it was sticking around long enough, you know, staying open-minded, trying to learn from my losses, trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work, staying disciplined to that whole process and sticking around long enough, you know, having longevity, which really I think comes down to, as I've learned as I've gotten older, is, um, you know, all the old kind of cliches, being honest, you know, being upfront with people over time works, you know, people can forgive that you've lost some money. You know, what they can't forgive is that you lied to them, that you told them you do one thing and you do something else and you mm -hmm. lost some money. That's no good. If I tell you what I'm doing and where I fit into what you're doing and I do it and it loses some money, hey, I'm not guilty. You know what I mean? I just, hey, maybe I suck at trading, right? But I'm not guilty of anything. I'm honest about it. And this is what it is, right? So I right. think that is what provides longevity. You know, I, I've never, you know, stolen any money from anybody. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't, that doesn't make me a saint. You know what I mean? But I haven't broken securities laws. I haven't, you know, lied to people. So that creates longevity. And longevity is very important. If you think you're going to start at 22, 23 years old, make a bunch of money trading, like probably a lot of 22, 23 year old guys are going to do now, you know, right now, because of the market the way it is. You think that's just going to go on from now until forever? You're fucking wrong. There's going to be periods where you lose money and you have to be able to get through that, you know? So I think that's kind of what has helped me to, to get here is I'm still, I'm still going. You know, it's like the Rolling Stones, right? I mean, they're the richest rock and roll band. Is it because they're the greatest? Arguably, they're maybe the greatest rock and roll band. But the truth is, Cream only lasted, you know, two years. The Rolling Stones have been around for 60 years. So that's why the Rolling Stones make $100 million now. They didn't know in 1969 that they were going to be making $100 million on a tour, right? But the longevity Absolutely. has created that. You know? Absolutely. So. And to wrap up the podcast, what are your top three tips for investors today? Or are your top three tips for, you know, aspiring traders today? My top three tips. Don't let a bull market convince you that you're smart. Okay. Everybody makes money in a bull market. Okay. <laughs> doesn't, mean, doesn't mean you're smart, right? It's good that you're involved, but don't confuse it. I'd say that's one tip, you know? Um, don't believe that you know more than the market because you, there's no possible way to know more than the market, right? I, I like to say there might be one person out there who you could point the finger to and we could prove is the single smartest person in the market. Okay, we, let, let's say that we can find that person. It doesn't even do him any good because he actually has to be smarter than the entire market put together, right? To have an edge, right? Right. And that's impossible. You can't be smarter than, you know, 500 million people put together, right? So think about, you know, like we were talking about before, you have to think about it in terms of risk return, you know, not in terms of I'm so smart that I can figure this stuff out and make money, right? If you're Absolutely. smart, yeah. figure out that you can't predict the future and how you're going to make money based on that. Um, I think that's an important, an important thing. Um, I mean, that's really it. The other important thing is, you know, join the uh, crowdedmarketreport.com and uh, join <laughs> community and, and get involved because we're, it's been fun doing this thing. You know, this was actually all part of the, um, Hazem, my partner approached me and asked me if I wanted to do this. I kind of didn't want to, but he, it goes back to the helmet thing, you know, which is part of what you do. You know, you have to kind of pay it forward, right? So people were asking me when that book came out, if I could help them learn how to trade. And all of a sudden on LinkedIn, I'm getting like 10 people a day. And I'd like to help people, but 
how can I help that many people, you know, one-on-one? -on -one? It's impossible, right? I've got Absolutely, a yeah. I manage a portfolio. I have a business, you know? So we started this thing so people could get on there. And I, I didn't know where it was going to go, but it's been cool because we get a bunch of people on there and they talk and they're, you know, we're all, I learned from them too. You know, we're all talking about our experiences and there's people on there that are beginner traders, people that are more experienced, people that trade this, that, and the other thing. And that's been a, a really good thing. And like I say, it all goes back to that whole helmet thing of, you know, pay it forward, help people. That's part of life. You know what I mean? You couldn't have success. This is kind of what helmet learned. I learned from helmet, right? Cause I was just some freaking putts that was broke. And I wanted to trade at that point. When I met helmet, I just gotten fired from a job for all the wrong reasons, but whatever. All I knew was I was out of work and I had two kids that, that needed food. Right. I met helmet. He backed me. And from there, my career really was able to, get on track, so to speak, because I had Helmut Weimer backing me. So, you know, you know, how people think they hear that and they're like, Oh, you know, <laughs> um, so he yeah. helped and he didn't need to help me. You know, he didn't need the money, right? Even the money that I managed for him and the returns I gave him, he didn't need that. You know, <laughs> he, he got to give me $10 million, whatever. I make him 10%. I make him a million dollars. I get 20% of it. He doesn't even need that money. Right. So without help from other people, this longevity thing or whatever reason that's gotten me here would never have, ha have happened. So I find as you get older, you have to turn around and start to help other people too. So I guess that's a cheap way to plug my website, when you <laughs> ask me. but you know, that, 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 that's kind of what I would say. Right. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Jason. It was awesome having you. Awesome. Thanks Great talking me. to you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to market champions to never miss an episode make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time